Welcome to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast, where we explore the spirituality of the Christian child through the method of catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I am your host, Carrie Meki Lozano. Membership with the United States Association of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, it connects you with catechists and supporters of this work who share a commitment to the Christian formation of children. And so when you are a member, you're not only going to get access to all the wonderful resources that we have in the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, but your membership will also help our association spread the word about how a relationship with the Good Shepherd can change the lives of adults, as so many of us can attest, and also nourish the spiritual growth of children. For any individuals who are members, you get access to our online material manual. Now, this is for anybody who has done formation with the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd Method. As members, you also get updates and communications from CGS USA. You also get access to the Folietto, which is from the International Concilio that they meet every three years and they produce different letters for us as continual formation and updates. You also will get emails from Member Memo and Parent News and as well as access to the member directory. You will get voting privileges and access to restricted materials that you could purchase as well as the beautiful mustard seeds. But my favorite thing that you get as a member is the annual journal that is mailed to you. Now, these annual journals, they are a form of continual education, a continual expression of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd publications. And these journals are written and published with that same spirit and focus, which is the religious life of the child and the essentials of the Christian faith. These journals have that same focus. The journal is there to provide a resource for ongoing formation as we continue to explore these two great mysteries of who is the child and who is God. The journals also contain really beautiful theological artwork from the children as well as their prayers and observations while they are in the atrium. I cannot speak highly enough about the wealth and beauty and how much these journals can feed your soul. The 2022 journal just came out. So if you are already a member, you should have received your hard copy in the mail. It is on our Montessori foundations. But we also have copies of all the past journals all the way back to 1984. In these old journals, they have beautiful writings from Sophia and Gianna and other early collaborators in this work. There is a treasure trove of information, especially in these old journals. Maybe you've read a handful of our other books with like The Religious Potential of the Child and Joyful Journey and Life in the Vine and Ways to Nurture the Relationship with all these beautiful books that we have and you want more. Or maybe you've gone to formation and, and you want to feed those seeds that have been planted in you. These journals, the old ones and the new ones, are such great food for our souls. So last episode, we got a deeper glimpse into who 
Sophia Cavaletti was. So for today's episode, I would just love to hear from Sophia Cavaletti herself. And these journals are one of the best ways for us to hear from her directly. So today I'm going to share with you an article from the 1985 journal by Sophia Cavaletti. I hope you enjoy. Characteristics of the Good Shepherd Catechesis by Dr. Sophia Cavaletti. Translated from the Italian by Patricia Coulter. What are the principal points which distinguish our catechesis and because of which it is called the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd? I think the principal point to emphasize is the experimental character of our work. And what does this experimental character, which our work has always had and must continue to have, consist? What we have sought to discover during these 30 years is what aspect of God corresponds most to the vital needs of the child throughout the diverse stages of development. And we insist on vital needs and not simply interests. What we have been researching is precisely this. That aspect, out of the infinite richness of God, which appeases and satisfies that religious hunger in children. That is to say, on one hand, there is God with the infinite richness of his person. On the other hand, there is the human person with vital needs, essential to one's being and for the formation of one's very life, needs which change according to age. For instance, there is the spousal aspect of God's love, which obviously does not relate to the young child's needs. There is a phase in childhood called the delirium of omnipotence, during which the child attributes extraordinary powers to any person whatsoever. Therefore, the omnipotent God becomes just one more person who is all-powerful but it would not reveal the particularity of the person of God. When we manage to focus on that aspect of God, which is actually in harmony with the special need of that age, then we see that the child takes possession of the message with what I would call a special avidity, and that this message calls forth profound enjoyment in the child, that unique quality of joy which we have spoken of so often which the child experiences with encountering the religious reality. It is a joy that resounds very deeply and places the child in a state of profound peace. It is really like seeing someone who is thirsty running to water, or the sight of someone who has met and found one's own vital environment, who enjoys it with his or her whole being and not solely with the mind and does not want to leave it. A second characteristic is the de-schooling of catechesis, to free catechesis from anything of a scholastic nature. Catechesis is not just one more among many academic subjects which the child learns. Catechesis is listening together to and communal celebration of the word in which there is only one teacher. And certainly it is not we who are the teacher. If we have 20 children before us, then there are 21 persons who are listeners. 
There is a very special richness in listening together with children. In these days, great emphasis is attributed to listening in community, and this is assuredly right. However, when we are all adults, there is a commonality among us by the simple fact that we are all adults. When we listen with children, they bring to the listening and the response to that listening a particular way of living religious experience, a special manner of being with God. And so if we let ourselves become involved in the Word of God with children, we too can discover or rediscover a way of drawing close to God, which is different from the adult community. We can discover or rediscover some fundamental values of the religious life, which I would synthesize primarily as essentiality and enjoyment. The presence of God in our life as the source of deep enjoyment. Deschooling also signifies renouncing every form of control in the scholastic sense. This may be a difficult point for a catechist because it is a complete relinquishment of certain means which can give us a sense of security, a security which is, however, false. For it is the greatest realities, those things which we most want to hand on to children and which they are most capable of grasping, which are the very realities we cannot measure in any way. To what degree do we know or live the reality that God is love? To what degree do we know or live the reality of the death and resurrection of Christ? These are the realities which even we are unable to measure. To what degree do we live them in our own life? Imagine trying to do that for others. Obviously, we can check things of secondary importance, such as names associated with geography and the altar articles, but we will never be capable of knowing the intensity with which the child can live his or her religious experience, nor how deeply or fully the message has entered into them. It is only the superficial elements we can control. These elements also happen to be those that interest us only to a certain point and are of no great concern whether the child knows them or not. In this perspective of controls, to question the child may be most misleading because many times if we ask a child something, the child responds quickly. The reply that is so fast in coming is often of little value. It means that what the child answers is something rather superficial in his, her life. It is just in the mind so that the answer can be given with rapidity. Deep responses are those requiring time to be formulated because they come forth from the depths of the person. Persons without sufficient experience with children, seeing them hesitate before responding to certain questions, often think the child does not know anything. Nonetheless, there are certain things that can give us an indication as to the quality of our work. Discovered through observing children, if the child manifests an attitude of concentration, displaying the behavior of one who has found his or her own vital milieu, the children's prayer may be in some way another indicator for understanding our work. 
if their prayer is rich and comes forth as an expression of enjoyment in, an awareness of what has been received. The message has probably been conveyed in an adequate living form. But when we approach the area of prayer, it is evident just how inadequate the scholastic term control is. It is also evident how respectful we must be in front of the mystery of the relationship between God and the child. We must learn to wait, not to pretend anything. And maybe sometimes God will let us know something about this mysterious relationship. Before speaking of the next aspect, the method we adopt, we should first emphasize the fact that the method must correspond to the content. It is not a matter of indifference which method we use, because the method is not a neutral thing, like an empty box into which we can put anything whatsoever. The method has a spirit, a spirit which interacts with the content, either aiding the exposition or actually distorting the content's nature. In order for catechesis to have a truly living character, it is necessary to present it to children not as a ready-made product, already complete and fully elaborated, but rather to offer children sources of suggestions for their reflection and meditation. We can contrast two methods, the method of definitions and the parable method. Definition, and the word itself says what it does, attempts to define and hence to limit that which is by its very nature illimitable. Because what we are trying to communicate to children is that the mystery is infinite. Therefore, there is, I would say, a counterposition, an incompatibility of nature between the definition and the message transmitted namely the knowledge of the mystery. Father Alonzo Schokel of the Biblical Institute states that we need not search for the best definition, but that the definition itself is mistaken as it is defining, delimiting. In the place of definition, we put parable, which may be compared to a window opening onto ever-expanding horizons. The story of the parables guide us toward an endless research. The parables' two elements, one from everyday life and the other transcendent, act as tracks or rails along which our reflection advances always farther and aid us to meditate always more deeply. That is not to say that with the parable we are meant to grab whatever thoughts pass through our minds. Instead, we need to follow this guide provided by the two elements of the parable. In contrasting definitions and parable, a different image comes to mind. In dealing with definitions, we think of a large, somewhat intimidating adult who has written something of a little importance in a small book, which is held in front of a very small child who must receive what the adult has written there. The child, then, is receiving a second-hand experience. For though it is likely that it was an experience for the adult to write the book, it is still only his or her own experience. We need not transmit our own experience to children, 
we must try to help the children meet the mystery of God. In dealing with parables, we think about a great book through which the children and adults together are trying to know who God is. The parable is a great poverty, enclosing an infinite wealth, a limitless richness. Just think of the scant, poor elements of some parables. A woman making bread is not an extraordinary event. Yet, it is from this poverty that we can reach the transcendent reality. The parable, which does not limit, which knows its own poverty, though containing richness, is co-natural with the mystery. With the parable method, there is not the danger of distorting the nature of the Christian message. It is clear that for the parable to remain parable, to conserve the wealth of its content, it should not be explained. Once explained, we reduce the parable to the level of definition. We limit, fix, and destroy its richness. Our method has been termed a spiral method in the sense that it evolves from a central nucleus. The curriculum for children three to six years of age, which then opens towards more vast horizons. The program for the child under six may be considered the bud of a flower, which then unfolds. But the flower is already there in the bud. Therefore, the catechesis for the very young children which is elaborated by following their reaction and responses, contains the essential of the Christian message. God is love. Christ is risen. Another important element in our catechesis is the attitude of the adult, which depends to a large extent upon the way in which we look at the child. If children are seen as having great religious capacities, which are a special quality different from the adults, this will be reflected in the attitude the adult assumes towards them. If children are viewed as empty beings who have and know nothing, then the adult tends to shape them according to one's own experience and to hand over to them one's experience. If children have their own special religious richness, what we need to do is help them care for and nurture their inner wealth. In this case, the more peripheral our assistance is, the better it will be. In the realm of the Spirit, I do not think any person can give another direct help. To do so would be an undue, unjust interference. Our task is to assist the establishing of the relationship between God and the child. With all the limits, any service includes... It is an act of service that we seek to render the child. It is one which tries to enable communication to occur between two poles of the relationship, God and the child, and to allow their relationship to unfold with the adult standing aside. In her book, Education and Peace, Maria Montessori asks what education really is and offers this response. Education is the preservation of the obedience to life. 
In this vision, the adult is in a position of standing vigilant, of guarding and protecting, watching for what is taking place. This view presupposes that the child has a natural obedience to life, that the child naturally goes towards particular achievements. The adult, therefore, is in a stance of defending this capacity for obedience to life, which is within the child. How do we offer children this peripheral assistance? It is given with the materials in the prepared environment. What is the purpose of the material? To answer this, we should keep in mind that there are different moments in catechesis. The first moment is the time for listening to and receiving the message. The second is the time when the listener reconsiders the one's self, what has been heard, and as St. Augustine says, recognizes its truth. This is the moment when we truly learn, through an interior conversation with the Master who teaches inside. As for the Master, St. Augustine, in the 14th chapter of De Magistro, states that I can never teach. A person cannot teach another the mystery of God. We can only help the other to seek. To teach is translated into Italian as insegnare, which means to show a way, to indicate a point, to help the person turn one's gaze towards a certain place. But as for reaching that point, everyone must go it by one's own self. We cannot make any person really meet God. This each must do for oneself, listening and responding to the interior teacher. The task of the material is precisely to aid children during the second moment of learning, to help them meditate on what has been announced and to do so at their own rhythm, without adult interference. With the inner master, this is a mystery between God who speaks to his creatures and the child. Certainly, there is a presence of the adult in the material insofar as it has been prepared by adults and checked and refined by their observation of the children's reflection to it. Nevertheless, the help of the adult offers the child is indirect in form, as it permits the adult to step apart at a particular moment and leave the child for his or her own one-on-one experience of the word received. For the material to be a real service to the child's meditation In prayer, it should be extremely simple. Adhering closely to the proposed theme and without the adult's own improvisations. If the material merely issues forth as an adult invention, it is ineffective, as we have seen so many times. The more material is our own adult-conceived invention, though it may give us greater satisfaction as it reflects our own ingenuity the more ineffectual it is for the children. The prepared environment is called the atrium, a term used by Maria Montessori in reference to the intermediate space in an ancient Christian basilica between the street and the actual place of prayer. The atrium should also be an intermediate environment between the school and church. We could represent it as a place of spiritual retreat. It is also, without doubt, a place for work, yet one in which work easily becomes prayer. As well, the atrium is a place of worship where children and adults celebrate the word together. For catechesis, 
is the communal celebration of the word. The interrelationship between the atrium and the community merits some classification. The atrium is the place for children and their catechists. The community is wider, inclusive of all adults. Their functions are complementary, I believe. The atrium, without the community, may lack the invigorating oxygen necessary for a full life. As a result, the atrium may become a place of cultivating hothouse plants, which would lack resistance required to live in the external world. The community without the atrium, unfortunately a common occurrence, contains a risk as well. The risk is that children may come close to very great realities and pass them by without notice. They may go along their own path, unmoved by wonder at the world surrounding them and untouched by the enchantment which the Word of God revealing Himself should create in us. The next consideration in speaking of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd is whether or not it can be called anthropological. Nowadays, there is a great significance attached to the experience of those we catechize. In contrast to this, we propose the approach which takes into account not so much the experience as the exigency or vital needs of the person. Let us distinguish. An experience is something individual, which comes from the outside and impresses itself on the person, whereas an exigency is rooted in the very depth of the person like a hunger impelling one toward determinate realities and achievements of which the person has vital need for one's very existence. An exigency is not peculiar only to a singular individual, but it is within each human person and changes and develops according to the various age levels. This may become clearer if we mention how we came to this awareness we began to realize that there were some themes which all children, regardless of their environment, country, or diverse culture background, responded in the same way. The reactions we observed in the children were, above all, the desire to continue working at length on the specific subjects, a sense of profound, serene peace which enabled us to see how these themes were grasped by the children to the depth of their beings, and a non-scholastic quality of knowing, a knowledge which showed itself to be deeply rooted within the child. As this happened with all children, we are unable to say it depended on this or that child, on the fact that the presentations went better with one group than another, or on the special sensibility of some children as opposed to others. It was a general fact that could be perceived in all the children we worked with. We were not, therefore, dealing with this or that child who reacted this way or was the child who responded in this manner because in these fundamental themes could be found the satisfaction and fulfillment of exigency proper to the age. The two principal themes which drew our attention to such needs are the great Christological image of the Good Shepherd and the Light, to which children from exceedingly diverse and distant milieu reacted to in exactly the same way. We also saw how the children's response to these images alter with age. For example, in little children, the Good Shepherd image gives rise to the sense of protection and serene peace. 
we are comfortable with the Good Shepherd. Gradually, as children grow, it is faithfulness of God's love, highlighted especially in the parable of the found sheep, that is most striking to them. There is an obvious change in the fundamental needs of children according to the different age levels. In conclusion, I think it is possible to say that the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd may be described as anthropological inasmuch as it most definitely affords attention to the importance of the person. Yet it does so not with regard to individual, personal experience, but rather in relation to the foundational structure of the human person. Finally, a characteristic of our catechesis is its fidelity to Catholic tradition. What do I mean when I say faithfulness to tradition? The themes we give to children are all points to the Christian message which have remained living in the church's life up to today. Think, for example, of the importance that the Good Shepherd image has had in tradition of the Roman catacombs. It is fundamental. This is true for other points as well. Baptism as illumination is a fundamental theme in St. Paul's catechesis, as it is with the church fathers. This is also the case with the exercise of the preparation of the chalice with wine and a few drops of water. This theme is found in the catechesis of the fathers, in which it is given particular attention as a sign of the Incarnation of the union of the divine with the human. This is an important fact because the themes which have remained alive throughout such a long tradition, at least 2,000 years old, if we do not include the themes and symbols that go back to the Jewish tradition, are evidently themes which are essential to the life of the community. Basically, it is no surprise that it is the child who has guided us to the choice of these themes. We did not choose them ourselves. They came forth from observing children and their responses. It does not surprise me that it is the child whose religious life is characterized most essentially by its essentiality and whose very being is so essential, who has led us to a selection of themes which have always been essential to the life of the community. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. In our show notes, I have a link for you to be able to purchase the journal that I read this article from. So this article was called The Characteristics of the Good Shepherd Catechesis, and it is from the 1985 journal. And to access that, you can purchase the book, Journals of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd from the 1984 to 1997 compilation edition. Again, these journals are just a wealth of knowledge. They're great to have on your bedside table and read one article a night. It is beautiful just to let it percolate in your heart. I also wanted to remind everybody that we now have the book, The Religious Potential of the Child, the third edition, available in audio form. If you would like access to the premium Podbean channel that has all the chapters of Religious Potential of the Child in it, 
we have instructions on our website on how to do that. I will put links in the show notes on how you can access those instructions. We are really excited to be able to offer this to you. So again, if you would like to purchase the audio version or if you would like to the instructions, all of those are in our show notes. This podcast is sponsored by the United States Association of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. If you would like to know more about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, or if you would like to become a member and receive all the benefits we talked about before, please go to cgsusa.org. Thank you all for listening. We will see you in two weeks. Go and fall more deeply in love with God.